Welcome to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. I'm your host, Nicole, and this podcast is your guide to start creating a lifestyle by design. From entrepreneurship, money and finance, taxes and residencies, and everything in between, this show highlights the nuances of a true global citizen lifestyle. Let's dive in. Marilee, welcome to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. I am so looking forward to this discussion that we're going to be having today. But before we dive into it, I would love to hear a little bit more about you and your journey, where you started, and how you got to where you are. So the journey, um, like most of us, I guess, pretty circuitous. Um, But the short story for me about wine is that it's been in my life forever. Basically, I um, was so fortunate to grow up with a father who's been an enthusiast my entire life. And one day when I was about 10 or 11 years old, he was grilling and made this beautiful dinner and he was pouring his favorite left bank Bordeaux. And for whatever reason, he decided I could have like just a tiny, tiny take. He poured me that little tiny taste and I just absolutely never forgot it. It left it a big impression on me. And it wasn't that, wow, I tasted it and I thought it was just the most wonderful tasting thing ever. It wasn't that at all. It was more about what it meant. And the meaning of it is what uh, left the big impression on me. It was, um, I knew it was um, sharing with people. It was meant to be with, to go with the food. It was for an important occasion. It was, you know, an an important occasion for, you know, sometimes an important occasion for me is it's the end of the um, but other times, you know, it's we're gathered together with family and friends and um, we're celebrating with food and wine goes along with that. I knew it was from somewhere really far away. It was from France, a place that I dreamed of going. Um, so that was the beginning of wine for me. And then, um, you know, eventually I, I went to France the first time when I was about 18 and just fell in love with this country, which ironically, that's where I am right now while we're talking <laughs> because I'm in France, um, fell in love with this country, fell in love with the language and the culture, and then ended up going to school here for a while during my university um, career. And that was the first time I ever really studied wine. It was um, very circumspect. It wasn't with intention to study wine. It was because I was had to do it for a language class that I was in. And, um, it, I mean, I was interested in wine because I just always sort of had been. After that, I came home from from Europe and graduated from college and went to work in industry in the United States. Worked for a big um, corporation, a big, quite a large, the biggest wine company in the state of Washington that owned brands outside of Washington. And I um, was in domestic wine for about just under a decade. Um, had a lot of wonderful opportunities to meet amazing people and um, taste a lot of wonderful wine. However, I noticed was I just didn't some men in winemaking knew a lot um, inside the organization that uh, had jobs working in the lab or um, other aspects that other parts of the business that really it made sense for them to move into winemaking. Enology and winemaking is part of their career path. And they tried successful at getting those um I didn't see a woman as a head winemaker in the organization I worked for until shortly before it was nearly a decade. Women in senior leader, and that didn't change the entire time I was there. I don't know. Um, you know, it's been quite a long time since I left that organization, so uh, I don't know 
wow, what's going on with it now? But um, yeah, that was that was kind of the beginning of of this for me. And then the other element was studying wine, sort of being a tourist in wine many years ago before I got serious about becoming an importer um, and really becoming a studying in a scholarly way. Everywhere I go in France and, and in Italy as well. I mean, in France, you see a lot of père et fils, father and son, um, father vineyards, you know, insert the name father and son. And I just wondered, well, wh- where are the women? Where are the, how come I don't see mother and daughter? You know, I think for a long time, it didn't occur to me to question it. And then I got to the point where I was, it was a stark realization and I couldn't stop. So that's yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And I had, it sounds like fairly early on, you started to realize in your career in America that that was missing. And I find, unfortunately, that is so true of so many industries. Even, you know, it irks me so much because traditionally women are the cooks, but then you look at the commercialized kitchen and it's men who are in there who are making the money. And women are kind of pushed to the side of, oh, in the home, the quieter position. So I like that you decided to change that. So what did you transitioning from your corporate position into an entrepreneurial venture? What did that journey for you and where has that led you today? Yeah, it was, I mean, for me, it was rather gradual. Moved into a sort of um, element of corporate life. And then finally, for me, I started importing in basically in 2008 is when I got, became a lot more serious about wine. 2017 is um, importing. That's when I set up my import business. And from the beginning, I've always imported from France and Italy and they've grown uh, low intervention wines. They're either organic or practicing. They're doing some kind of conscientious to full viticulture and very, very low mention um, on the winemaking side of things. So not a lot of additives. Basically, it's a small amount of um, sulfites. That's it. I don't work with any producers that add other things to the wine. And so what has that journey looked like for you in terms of where you started and then the business that you built up today? Wow. Well, it's, I mean, it's a wild ride. It still is. I mean, I don't know if there, if I will, will ever get to the point where I, where I feel like there are enough hours in the day. But for me, what happened was I started my career selling whole is um, sourcing and direct importing wines for a, a boutique import company that I owned. Then, um, and I was I had a, just a tiny book of business, small um, restaurants, primarily small restaurants all around the city of Seattle. And right before COVID in 2020 right before the pandemic landed, we had about six pallets of wine arrived early. And at the time, um, my business partner just kind of decided that this was not her thing. She just was looking for a much more relaxed pace in life. And this was turning work and it, it wasn't fun for her anymore. Well, I knew that I still long ways I wanted to go. Um, but unfortunately, what has, um we got, we had those six pallets of wine arrive. She left the business for all of February of 2020. I traveled. I was either in France at trade events or in New York at trade events. Seattle on the 12th, um, I did an event at a wine bar in Seattle. And then on the 15th of March, everything closed. We were in lockdown and I lost all my customers in one day. At that point, 
tiny restaurants that I was selling to, they were just trying to stay alive. They had no idea what their future held for them. They knew they weren't going to be out soon. And so their strategy with wine really was to use the wine that they had and start selling off the wine to so that they could avoid any spend on newer wines. They just, you know, basically the message was don't even talk to me about wine right now. Just forget about it. Well, so I had a bunch of wine to sell and I had no, no legal way to sell it. I did not hold a permit that allowed me to do anything but sell wholesale to small restaurants and small retail. So I'd been thinking about, you know, like for like eight months prior, um, wanting to do something online, direct to customer, set up an online wine club, an online wine shop. And obviously that was the moment to give it a try. It took me a while to get the permits. And then what I decided was, okay, I'm just going to test. I have no idea how this is going to go. You know, I don't, I, I mean, it just, well, that this is what I'm doing because I submit, um, knows anything about running an e-commerce business. What I know about is wine. And I also know about people and relationships. And so I decided I built this dorky little website um, because it was free. I didn't want to spend any money to hire anybody when I had no idea where this was going to go. I finally got all my licensing toward the end of 2020. To this day, I have still never asked. Um, It's just that the bulk of my clients are women, probably 85% of them are women and maybe 90%. And women, they tend to tell their friends when they hear about something cool, they tell their friends. And that's pretty much happened. It's just been sort of the network effect. And um, so the compressed story on that is actually um, what I decided to do with full um, encouragement and belief from my spouse is to really work on developing this business. And so now I'm actually shipping to customers in, I think, nine different states in the U.S., Washington, Oregon, California, Wyoming, Colorado, Florida, Minnesota, and New York. And um, exciting. It was fascinating during COVID to land on people's doorsteps with their, because I was, deli- I would, I did everything. I did the accounting. I took, you know, I had, I ran the website. I did all my own social media. I wrote my own newsletters. I just was doing everything. And when people would order wine, like two times a week, I'd go out driving around in my car and deliver wine to people. So I'd stand on their doorstep. We'd all have masks on. And they would say to me, wow, thank you so much for bringing me this. I want to tell you about when I went to Tuscany. Can I tell you about when I went to Bordeaux? Can I tell you about the, you know, the very last trip we got to do before the pandemic? And now thank you so much for bringing me vacation in a bottle. It was like I was bringing the bottles that I brought them were a way for them to tap into their memories of, you know, what they'd experienced. So that was really rewarding. And I'd never experienced anything like that selling wholesale. Selling wholesale, a lot of the time it's, you know, well, am I going to make margin? Can I charge a glass for what I'm paying? Which, you know, they're, make, they're running businesses. I understand that. Absolutely. It's just completely different selling direct. Well, I teach a lot of masterclasses now. I um, sort of private masterclasses for customers. And I love being with my customers. I absolutely cherish that as much as I cherish being with my producers. I just see myself as the link. I'm just here to be the connection point between the people in the U.S. that are enjoying these wines that are made by these women in Italy and France. What a story. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. So I find it so fascinating because 
many people in my world, in the nomadic world, and who are listeners as well, want to build something for themselves in the online space, specifically online, because they want the freedom and the ability to be wherever they are, wherever they want, whenever they want. So I find it really interesting in your story that you even admitted, you know, I knew nothing about most things on the internet. I didn't know how to have a website or, and you have built this amazing female empower wine empire. So to just touch on that very quickly, because I think listeners will resonate with that. What was one struggle for you when you first started? And then how did you overcome that and end up building what you have built for yourself today? Oh my goodness. One struggle. <laughs> I can give you a list. And I mean, I'm still, I still run into them. And I think, I mean, like the first one that popped in my head was, oh my goodness, accounting. What? I mean, that was just not something I ever did outside of, you know, managing my personal finances, you know, and I, I always did a pretty good job with that. So I just figured I could learn it. At the end of the day, you know, when I'm having a tough day, when I'm running into a roadblock, what always goes through my mind is, okay, well, you got to ask yourself, how important is this to you? How bad do you want this? And it's always the same answer. I believe in these women that are working so hard in a world that's been dominated by men for thousands of years, literally. I mean, centuries upon centuries. I believe in them. They, if I think I'm having, um, mine's a cakewalk most of the time compared to what they're doing. So, yeah, I can manage to figure, I learned how to do things. You know, I don't have to do that anymore. I've helped, thank goodness. Things are a lot more complicated now than they were back. Um, I mean, building the website, that's. And one of my favorite quotes is from Marie Forleo, everything is figureoutable because it is. And you have so many resources. I love YouTube University as well. You can figure almost anything out on the internet. And, you know, that that's a whole rabbit hole I could go down. I just recorded a podcast about something along that line with free and paid and information online. But you can find so much just for free to get started on the internet. And then once you've started that journey, you can pay someone to do it like the website or, you know, there's infinite people that you can find. And I love the online web because it just connects you, whether it be travel or for business or whatever that looks like. Yeah. And I mean, I felt, I mean, my experience has been, there's a lot of value in having to do it myself first, because I learned things that I need to know when I'm going to not be involved on a day-to-day basis. I learn, I, I've learned things that have allowed me to ask important questions along the way. It doesn't mean I have all the answers by any stretch, but I, if I hadn't had to do those things myself, I would not I don't think I would be, things would probably be a lot harder. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's a great way of looking at it. You have to know first before you can pass it off to anyone else. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions that you listed that I want to dive into, and I want what your take on this is, is the wine industry. How do men and women approach the wine industry differently? Oh my goodness. I'll get going and you just jump in and stop me at any point. Because there's a few respond to that question. I mean, um, how men and women approach buying wine? How is that different? How men and women approach tasting? And what happens? What have I observed in, um, when I watch women and men tasting together versus women tasting without men around? What I observe in myself when I'm in a situation where there are men around versus when I'm just tasting with women? 
And then is the the industry as a whole, and in terms of um, people being employed and you know having access to to roles that are you know in that are the you know this is back to what you were saying about chefs, you know, the the in a restaurant, and you know the I, it would be fascinating to know how many Michelin star restaurants globally have female chefs. I would I you know I can't imagine that it's anywhere near as many as have male chefs. And it's a thing globally when you're talking around flashy, fabulous, well-known wine organizations, producers that you, the big name producers that are getting massive scores. And, you know, it's because of a lot of um, backing behind them to get access to those journalists that were kinds of, um, you know, those kinds of pieces and do scores like that. So in terms of, I mean, do you want me to start? Where do you want me to start? I think I would love to hear that aspect of things from the industry. But also when we're talking about doing the wine tasting, that is interesting to me how that's approached differently. You know, just right off the top here. Um, First of all, when it comes to buying wine, and this is a fascinating statistic I I love to share with people when I'm doing private events and masterclasses. Primarily, those are for women. It's very infrequent that men are present. Not that they're not welcome. It just doesn't usually end up that way. Um, most women don't realize that globally only 15% of winemakers are women. In 2023, 15% of all winemakers globally are women. That means 85% of winemakers are men. And we're not talking about the volume of wine produced. If we just looked at the volume, the number that the amount of wine made by women would be a tiny portion of what's made on the, on the global market. Um, because Women, there are just aren't as many women in big, they're making a lot of wine. Um, the flip side of this that a lot of women also don't know is that in the U.S., 80 to 85 percent of wine purchases are made by women. So women actually, we really have ours, I know I'll speak specifically to the U.S. market, because we're making most of the wine purchases. If we made a decision to, you know, focus a certain amount of our wine that purchases only on women winemakers, I think we would start to see a lot more than 15% globally. Because once organizations realize, and we're starting to see this now, actually, I mean, just in the years since the Me Too movement, we're starting to see shifts and changes where women are being given um, higher level positions in the wine business, whether it's in sale, you know, director of winemaking, VP of winemaking, um, senior level positions in sales, you know, those kinds of positions are now becoming more, um, they are becoming options for women where they just were not. Women were shut out of those for quite a long time. Um, When it comes to buying wine, men tend to buy what the industry calls vanity bottles. They want to, they're buying a bottle that's expensive and that, and it's expensive and well-known enough that the people that he shares this bottle with know that it's expensive. Women buy wine for an experience. They're going to get together with friends or family. It's going with food. Maybe they're, you know, there's usually an occasion tied to it. um, And they're buying it because of what it represents more so than because they're trying to make a point about who they are, I think. They're trying to bring people together. Um, And I'm sure there's exceptions on both sides. I don't, I never want to, you know, stereotype people and overgeneralize, but statistically, these are the things that we know about how men and women approach wine. When it comes to tasting, 
it's fascinating. Have a way of um, really taking over a tasting room, even when they are not terribly knowledgeable. And when I've seen this happen so many times, women immediately lose their confidence in what they taste. And the the crazy thing about this is a lot of people think that women are actually better tasters than men, um, physiologically, that we're, we're set up with better palates and we, we actually do a better job of sensory analysis than, than men do. But I've seen this over and over and over again. And then the flip side of it is when I'm doing, um, private events, masterclasses for groups of women, it's, um, joyful and collegial and they are learning from each other. It's, it's a completely different experience altogether. And it's not so much about proving, you know, what you know and how, what experiences you've had and talking about where you've been and all of that. It's, it's more, there's more curiosity. There's more interest in connecting because we always have food at these events. I mean, it is an elaborate food, but it's food that I choose intentionally to pair with the wine so that they learn a little bit about food and wine pairing as well. And they're really interested in that. They're really curious about that. They want to experience wine in, you know, they want to, they want to engage with it in as many ways as possible. Whereas um, I don't, I see that less. And, you know, good grief. I'm sure there's plenty of men out there that feel like, oh, geez, I don't want to go wine tasting because it's going to be a bunch of men, you know, that think they know a lot sucking up all the oxygen. That's really interesting. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I feel like that is very similar to a lot of industries. Even when I talk about, I talk a lot about finance specifically for global citizens who have left their home country and do travel the world. They get almost all of the bashlack from men who think that they know more. And, you know, I think increasingly, and that's why I love this space on the internet and social media where it is so healthy and productive because it's women supporting other women and what we know um, and saying like, you know what? No, I actually I do know more than you about this topic and I do have the right to talk about it. And I mean, clearly, that's just as prevalent in wine as well, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. It is. It is really interesting. And finance is such a it's a it's a perfect similar experience. It's definitely it's a lot the same. Yeah, I don't have a lot of um, like I haven't worked in the finance industry, but I've just in my personal experience of life, I've run into that when it comes to finance a lot as a woman. And it's very much what I observe in the world of wine. Yeah, so interesting. So so thank you for sharing that. I'd love to also chat about and we talked a little bit about this off air, but I think there's so much to dive into on this topic of the health aspect and maybe the unhealthy aspect, I should actually say, of the wine industry specific to America and why you're not using those wines anymore and why they're coming from different countries. I know I mentioned off air, I was listening to a podcast a while back and I was shook because I never knew what is really going into the wine. And I don't think anybody truly questions what's going into your wine because You traditionally think, and you know, I'm sure the companies want you to think this, that it comes from a grape and the machines crush it and it goes into the bottle. But that's increasingly, and especially for the less expensive wines, I don't think how it works so much anymore. It's not that cut and dry. So can you share a little bit about what you have experienced about this in the industry and some of the straight up 
craft that is just going into our wines and why you are doing what you're doing because you're solving this problem. Yeah, um, there is straight up craft going into wine. Absolutely. And and I mean, the big challenge, especially I'll just speak to the United States, we don't have, there's no requirement for any kind of labeling on. So um, it's exactly what you just said. We have, we just, I think we all just have this idea that, you know, someone goes out into a vineyard and they pick a bunch of grapes and they throw them into some kind of big vessel and then, you know, fermentation happens. And next thing you know, it's in the bottle and I'm pouring it into my glass at my kitchen table. That's not really how most of it is made, especially like you said, the lower cost wines that you find kind of on the lower shelves of the grocery store that are made in huge, huge, huge volume. And they're made to appeal to a specific demographic and their taste profile. There's a whole industry uh, around additives for wine to make them look a certain way and taste a certain way. And none of that information will ever be, well, I shouldn't say it will, it will never be. At this point, there isn't any plan for it to, to be listed on the label. Certainly additives, there's a, I mean, the, the business of additives for wine, I my um, take is that it's a global business. There are parts of the globe where it's, it's used a lot more and there's more additives that are allowed. Every country has its own list of additives that they allow and don't allow. Um, and the, the, I mean, gosh, I think in the U.S. it's over, I think like 250 additives are allowed, um, can be put into wine don't remember the number, what it is in Europe. I know that there, though that additives are definitely a thing here because there's here in Europe, there's high volume wine here as well. And when I talk to people about wine that is made, that's naturally made or conscientiously made, the way I like to talk to people that about it is when you go into the grocery store and you go into the produce section, there's the organic produce. And then there's what we call conventional produce. It's the same thing with wine. There's conventional wine that's typically high volume wine. There are some what I would consider to be conventional producers that, you know, they aren't making high volumes. And and I was telling you a lot, you know, before um hopped on the air that I just was scrolling through Instagram today and I saw some vitriol from conventional wine producers um really heaping out the hate for people that care about things being naturally made and they don't like to be painted with the same brush as these big organizations that put in a whole bunch of sulfites. And the reality is if we don't, if they aren't telling people how much they're in, how many, you know, grams per liter of sulfites they're using or parts per million of sulfites they're using in the wine, there's no way for anybody to know anything but what the maximum allowed is. Well, in the U.S., the maximum allowed is 350 parts per million. So if they are not using that, then, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm not by any stretch an expert on how they could be labeling their wine, but it seems like there's a way to talk about uh, how they're making their wine in a way that would help educate the consumer. The way that I do it with the producers here in Europe that I work with, because they are organic or biodynamic, either certified or practicing, they are, they have big limits on what they can do in terms of, in terms of treatments in the vineyard. 
um, they're they're not using chemical fertilizers. They're not using pesticides and herbicides. They, there's other ways that they are finding to deal with those situations. Um, now, granted, the climate change is creating a lot of challenges for the wine business, for wine growers all over the place, but that's another conversation um, altogether. There, there are additives and there is what I would, I would just classify it as there are producers really anywhere in the world that intervene highly, whether it's in the vineyard where they're adding, using a lot of chemical pesticides and herbicides, or whether it's in the cellar when they're making the wine and they're using a lot of additives to make it look a certain way or taste a certain way. Or, I mean, another way that sort of a useful way to explain it is, especially when we're thinking about people that we'll call quote unquote conventional producers. And I'll just say in the U.S. Um, because it, it tends to be tends to be more likely that they're in the new world because there are fewer regulations on winemaking. You go to the old world and there's there's regulations on winemaking here in terms of irrigation. It's a perfect one. Most places in France, you, you can't irrigate. You cannot irrigate unless you get a special dispensation to do that. And it has to be under emergency climate situations. It just doesn't. There are people that they plant new baby vines and they're out there watering them by hand because they're these little baby plants that, you know, when they're in the middle of an ongoing protracted heat wave, the plants are going to die if they don't water them. In the U.S., you know, most ever, there are starting to be exceptions where people are doing some dry land farming and proving that you can be in very, very dry places in California and still successfully cultivate the vine without water. But most, I think, and I think it will be this way for a long time. It's because it's just too easy to to irrigate. It just makes life. It's the same with using chemicals in the vineyard. It's so much easier for for the grower if they just use chemicals. Whether rather, you know, on the other side of it is if you don't, it's a lot more work. This really interesting discussion. And when you mentioned, I know this could be a whole other podcast episode when it comes to the global warming aspect of the business, but. It made me think of something I actually had completely forgotten. We were, we were on a wine tour. We were just in Argentina. So probably like three weeks ago, we were on a wine tour, this really beautiful winery in Mendoza, which is the wine country. Yeah, you know, the, the wine oh, country yeah. in Argentina yeah. and amazing wine. And it was so interesting because he was telling us and he had worked there for, I think, a decade at this point. And I think we often forget that wine is a big business. We see it as like luxury and a bottle, but it is a business and it's it's a billion dollar, I'm sure, business. And he was mentioning to us that the wine producers are now wanting to push more white wine because most people in that region, and I think a lot of people in the world in general, tend to drink more red wines. And I prefer red wine. But he was saying that because of global warming, because temperatures are getting hotter, they're wanting to push more of the white wine. And I think there was probably something else behind that as well that I'm sure you would know more of. But I found that so interesting how they're having, I think it was maybe something with the heat where the red in that region or something needed the, the cold, the grapes needed the cold or something. But they were trying to push more of the white as this like fruity and fresh for the hot weather because global warming now places are more hot than... Uh, during the year than they are cold. And it was so interesting. It just kind of brought me back to the ground. And, you know, we're in this beautiful wine country in Argentina. And it's like this 
is still a business that they are trying to make money from me. It's fascinating. I mean, it is a business. They do have to make money. And um, I don't in Argentina. Um, one thing that's that's in a general sense different than it is in the U.S. Um, is that in the U.S. there tends to be people that grow grapes and sell them to someone that makes wine. Whereas, for example, all the producers I work with, they are growing their own grapes. They are harvesting those grapes. They're cultivating those vines. They're harvesting those grapes themselves. And then they make the wine from their own grapes. So they have control from vine as to what is going on with that um, wine. And it's a business. You're right. I mean, they're, I, one of the things I um, talk to people about when I do champagne classes is I ask them, you know, what's, what's one of the um, big champagne brands that you know and you're really excited about? And I, you know, inevitably I hear um, hugely the, the Madame of Clicquot because she was a woman who was way ahead of her time and just an absolute badass in terms of what she accomplished during that era. I mean, women weren't allowed to do what she did and she was smarter than most. Anyway, um, so they tell me that and I ask people to guess, well, you know, how many bottles a year do you think Verve Clico makes? And while I'm having this conversation with them, I'm pouring juice or champagne. Um, a million? Will be a practically kind of high. You know, people are guessing and five hundred thousand. And um, and I tell them, you know, for example, um, one of the producers I work with here, Champagne, Champagne the Galley, um, she makes thirty to thirty-five thousand bottles a year, and Love Clico makes this per year. So yes, it's a business. Obviously, Love Clico is, and then the big Champagne marks they are mostly buying grapes from growers here. And that's a, that's a whole big thing about the history of champagne altogether. But um, yeah, there's, there's a business that's going on and it's a, com- it's a different thing when you are a grower who produces wine from the grapes that you grow. I mean, I work with a producer in Northern Italy and bottles a year, as long as it's a good year. If it hasn't been a good year, it's going to be less than that. This is a wine. Yeah. It's okay. all done by hand. There's their indigenous yeast, spontaneous yeast fermentation. So it's the fermentation's happening because of the the yeast that's living on the skin of the grape and living in the winery. And it's been living in that in that vineyard and in that winery for a long, long time. And, you know, new, fancy, high-tech looking wineries in the new world, they don't have that, they, they don't have that going on for the most part. So they are buying yeast from a lab, which, you know, we didn't, Hundreds of years ago, people didn't, they didn't know about yeast. It was there, but they didn't know it. It was Louis Pasteur that figured out, hey, there's this thing called yeast and it causes, it causes alcoholic fermentation. That's how all of this is happening. You know, wine was made for many, many centuries. But we will digress. The business and the (laughs) industry behind wine. So interesting. So is there anything that you feel like has been left out of this conversation, whether it be in terms of wine, in terms of entrepreneurship, something that you would like to bring to the surface in this conversation to kind of end off? Super fun conversation. Um, I, I guess going away, I hope that this has maybe got some people thinking differently about wine that they drink and you know maybe what's in this wine, get them to ask a few more about organic wines, think about 
if they are, if they, I mean, maybe for you, when you have the opportunity, because you're, you're in a really cool part of the world when it comes to wine, to start asking questions like, well, how many bottles a year do you make? And what are your practices in the vineyard? And, you know, what kinds of things do you add to the wine? And, you know, being comfortable pushing on when you're asking those questions so that you don't get brushed off and that you get a real answer. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's my hope is that people get become more curious about wine and start to think of it. I mean, the idea of behind wine is above all, it's about a sense of place. And that's what it started as. That's what it's about. It's supposed to be expressing the terror where it comes from. Unfortunately, now we live in an age where it's possible to make wine without terroir, completely in a lab, completely from chemicals. And it isn't, to me, that isn't wine. Wine is a food. And when we choose foods that are conscientiously grown, they're just, they're more pleasant. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I always like to tell people, hey, you know what? We no longer live in that era where we're drinking wine because it's safer to drink than the water. You know, wine doesn't have any purpose anymore except for our pleasure. Well, where can people find you in the online space? There's a, there's a few different easy ways. Um, the first is on my website, iolawines.com. I-O-L-A is actually was named after my grandmother, Iola Wines. And if people want to go to the website and sign up for my newsletter, I don't send out loads of them, but I send out stories about producers and places I've been, my favorite places. Of course, a lot about grapes and wine and food and wine pairing and um, travel opportunities with me, things like that. Or if someone's all in and really wants to join our clubs, we have something called the Iola Wine Society, and that is just the catch-all for the five wine clubs we do, which are either specific to red wine, ones that's specific to white wine, one that's for people that like a little bit of everything. And then we do a sparkling club, which this year is all grower champagne because I've met so many bubbly badasses in the past year here in Champagne that had to go all champagne this year with the sparkling club. You can join on our website, iolawines.com, or if you just want to connect. You've just listened to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. If anything from this episode resonated with you, I would appreciate if you share this podcast on your socials. And of course, be sure to tag me. And don't forget to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining me on this global citizen journey, and I'll see you in the next episode.